So as I mentioned, it's good to be back. And I wanted this morning to combine some reflections on having been, as we say, up the hill and working with our two-month retreat for the second month, the month of March, and some reflections from being part of that process with the intention of combining that with themes about how to deepen our formal meditation practice, some words on how we can deepen our formal practice. We talk a lot here, especially about ways of deepening our practice, both on the cushion, but also a lot, we spend a lot of time talking about how to deepen daily life practice. A lot of different themes related to that. And I realize we don't uh, always focus so much on the formal practice itself. You know, most of the themes can be related to that. But it's an important part of our time together. And so I wanted to give uh, some mm, core guidelines or principles that, that I've been more aware of working with people who were there for either one or two months up the hill with a, with a certain level of practice. And I also realized that it's, it's actually quite wonderful to come back from a fairly intense experience like that, of being immersed with uh, about 90 people's very intensive exploration and learning, and in a way quite similar for people who are taking a teaching role. Uh, very, very intensive, a lot of learning on our part. And in a way, something like a retreat, it's quite wonderful to be able to come back and share it. And there's something about this process that of when we go into times of exploration or maybe challenge, it's really, I think, important to be able to come back to our communities and talk about it. You know, I had a friend who did a solo retreat in February and she was saying that it felt somewhat lonely because she really had all this movement and process that had been opened up. She just, she sat by the ocean for the month of February. And then she went back home and it was sort of, of course she could talk to a few friends, but there felt, something felt like it was very much still in her. So I love the process of being able to talk about when we go through uh, periods of exploration, learning, maybe challenge, difficulty. And it's something like what I think happens in many communities. People go away for trips and they come back and I'm not going to have any slides <laughs> to share with you this morning. <laughs> we don't really have the mechanisms to share slides of the inner journey at this point with technology, maybe in the future. <laughs> what would it be like to have a slideshow and say, this is me, blissful. <laughs> if we had just the outward image, you'd just be sitting down on the cushion and this is me, blissful. This is me, highly irritated. You know, this is me, having a deep insight, right? And you know, there's, although there have been filmmakers who've tried to bring out the inner 
landscape in images. They're quite beautiful. Some filmmakers have tried, and artists have, have done that. I was thinking also, it's something that would happen. <clears throat> um, often a shaman would go off for a period of exploration. When the shaman comes back to the community, there's a song. There's some kind of sharing. <clears throat> and I really like that idea. So if you <clears throat> think of it for yourself, <clears throat> if you feel called to, to share when you've gone on a journey up the West Coast, <laughs> for example, uh, or, or some kind of journey, it can be beautiful to, to share that. So I wanted to share that with this mix of reflections on my own experience and, and pointing to ways of deepening practice. And I wanted to c continue to thread throughout what I, what I communicate, a series of some of my favorite poems. So I want to do that and, and hopefully leave a fair amount of time for us to talk at the end, talk together. So I wanted to begin with a poem by Pablo Neruda, the great uh, poet from Chile. And this is about this process of continual exploration, of continual coming back to just seeing what is present, which is the core of our practice. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. I think from the poem you can get a sense of the mysterious quality of our process of awakening, of our process of going more deeply. And for me to be part of this two-month process, and I've been a retreatant uh, in that process a number of times, but to be on the teaching end of it was also to enter into mystery. It was really to be uh, with people who were very, uh, very dedicated, who were really um, just doing one thing, which is to be attentive to what's happening in their experience. And it's what we do when we sit. We set this time aside to be attentive to what's there in our experience. Very, very simple. You know, and we do it here, maybe for this once a week, and we do it at home. And we do it with the intention of having that interest and patience begin to pervade our lives. So that the ways that we explore in our formal sitting practice inform our lives more and more. And hopefully we have enough insight and 
sense of what's really valuable with that process of formal meditation, which we might do half an hour a day, an hour a day, a little less, a little more, and just to be continually doing that for a month, very inspiring. It really helps to, um, I think, remind all of us, even though it's not an easy process, remind all of us what's important in our lives, which is really something that we forget, of course. And we come, maybe coming back here, this has a little bit of a function of a Sunday sermon or something, <laughs> you know, where we're, we, we get reminded of things. And, and we have a chance to go many times in the week, but I was just reading an article in the newspaper which said only 5% of people in Marin, didn't mention the East Bay, but said only 5% of people in Marin actually go to any regular religious or spiritual service a week. That's interesting. Did they say church specifically? <laughs> no, I think it would include any form. I don't know if they're counting Spirit Rock, but I mean, it wouldn't change the figures isn't, that much. Isn't the national average like 65? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a, it is. It is. So, but in any case, in any case, it's about it's about coming back to what's most important, you know, and just very um, very inspiring to be with that process of continually coming back to the present for a month. It can really uh, help us. We live in that environment. And there can be this simplicity of life. My only intention, being there, just to be present. It's that way for the teachers as well. You know, because it's even more important in a teaching role to be present because it's like we're present for ourselves. But if, if I'm not present in a teaching role, it has an impact. You know? And even if I am present, I'm not necessarily skillful. <laughs> But if I'm not present, I'm certainly not going to be skillful. <laughs> so, so there's that quality of uh, um, simplicity. And I think one of, as we get more immersed in practice, I think our lives get simpler, actually. Because we only, we have as this fundamental intention just to be present and to be as skillful as we can with whatever comes up. There's a, so there's a simplifying that can occur, I think, when we do more practice. Our minds get really, really complicated. It's just simplifying what's happening in the moment. How can I respond skillfully? You know, and of course we have complicated life issues and complicated family uh, structures and choices about work and relationships and how to stop global warming and so forth. But there can be a simplicity of our practice. You know, I, I thought of a, a wonderful line that I like from Kierkegaard where he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. Uh, that quality of power and purity that can come from when we simplify our lives, at least in terms of what our intention is. Or I was thinking of Julia Butterfly Hill says, my only question is to ask of my action, is it coming out of love? moment by moment. So I think when we, one way to deepen our practice is to keep it simple like that, to really have that sense of simplicity.
Another feature of the retreat that's very striking is what we could call, using psychological language, the container. That to really inquire deeply into ourselves in our meditation practice, in our lives, we need a a good support structure. It's not simply a matter of doing it by individual willpower. And being at the retreat, very striking how much support there is. There's the support of silence, there's the support of beauty, of the environment, there's the support of other people doing the same thing, there's the support that we can feel here, right? That we know that other people are interested. We have the support of not thinking that we're overly weird. (laughs) This is important, (laughs) you know. how many of you, this is, you can, if you want to have your eyes closed when you, I'm going to ask, how many of you think that you are at least somewhat strange or weird? Okay, okay. and so we have half or two-thirds raised their hands and the other half showed their weirdness by not raising their hands. <laughs> so that, that sense of a community of, um, well, <laughs> in other language we would say a community of very unique individuals, <laughs> unique and gifted individuals, um, is, is really important. You know, and, and it's also just the simplicity of the environment. So you know, I think that, and I was thinking that container also very much helped by the fact that we took ethical precepts, that we became a safety zone for a month, people could generally feel much safer than usual, you know, and you see this reflected at Spirit Rock by the behavior of the deer and the turkey, turkeys. I don't know about the lizards, but if they're quite tuned in in the same way, but the, you know, during the last month, the turkeys basically took over Spirit Rock, (laughs) you know, and there was one day I don't know, it was just a few days ago, we come down early in the morning and there was like a turkey convention down in the parking lot. <laughs> and they were, they, were, they were there in their regalia and just huge numbers, more turkeys gathered I've ever seen in my life, aside from you know, having seen turkey farms, but that doesn't count more in the wild than I'd ever seen. And, and there's something about the safety and we think that, for example, the behavior of the deer is different than it is on the other side of the valley. We think that there's something passed on to the young telling them, even though these people are a little weird, they're cool. (laughs) 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 You know, whatever they say in deer language that that communicates that, but there's this quality of, of safety. And we take those ethical guidelines, and it's something that can be really an important part of our daily life. What's the equivalent of the container for your daily practice? You know, what helps to, what is your support structure for deepening your daily life? It could be to really have a time that's quiet when you sit, or to have an altar, or to really work sincerely with the ethical precepts. You know, it's, there's a tremendous simplification that occurs when we are living lives of integrity. It's way more complicated and difficult to live lives that involve 
not always telling the truth or acting in harmful ways. It actually complicates our lives. There's a simplicity and uh, a support that comes with the ethical precepts. So that can be really, really crucial. You can ask, how can I strengthen my container for my support structure for my practice? You know, it could be the way your place is in your home where you meditate, or it could be being clear about the ethical precepts. In some communities, the ethical guidelines are reviewed once a week, or once every two weeks, or once a month. We do that here on the second Wednesday. We, we renew the ethical precepts. I think that's a very strong support for practice, you know, because it helps, it helps us during the day when we go into like what we sometimes call a gray area. And, you, and you, we think, is that wise speech? Or am I harming another? And it can really act as a way to give feedback right in the moment. So the core of our practice and what we really, in a sense, truly practice here is learning to be present in a way that we can track our experience and respond skillfully in the moment. And so what we do when we sit is that we train in that. And we need training. We can't do that just, uh, as it were, off the street. If people could do that, there'd be no need for Spirit Rock or for other places. But we need to train to actually be present, to develop mindfulness, to able, be able to be here, especially when the difficult stuff comes up, you know? That we need to really uh, use our time of practice to be able to be here, to be able to be present. And I think we do that in a few different ways. First of all, we stabilize attention. When we have a scattered mind, whether it's in a retreat or in, our, uh, in a given moment, it's very hard to respond skillfully when we're scattered. So very crucial to stabilize attention. And that's a lot of what we do here. We stabilize attention, we bring our attention often to the breath, typically to the breath, and we learn how to be present with the breath. We learn how to stabilize our attention so we can see more clearly. You know, and it's something we can do here in our formal practice, and it's something we typically do right at the beginning of every session. We stabilize our minds. We stabilize our uh, consciousness so that we can actually be there. We do that with the breath, and we learn to uh, be with the breath, to use the breath as this friend, this anchor, this reference point that helps us to continually uh, come back. And we develop the ability to track what's happening experience carefully. One way to deepen our formal practice is to track more carefully. I think sometimes we use our meditation just as a way to kind of feel relaxed, to kind of just, ah, there's a time just to be peaceful, let my mind go where it may, and so forth. One way we can actually deepen our practice, and this, this is true on a one-month retreat as well as just for a 45-minute sitting, there's a tendency just to let the mind go and to just be with the old habits of thought. So we can have, in a way, a kind of relaxed quality 
of really tracking, a really, we could say a relaxed discipline. We need that relaxation, but we also need to not be so relaxed that we just use the sittings as a way to let our minds go and just to be in <coughs> daydreams. So we can actually track, we can be with the breath and try to have a little more careful tracking. Be with the breath more precisely. Note what's happening when we're not with the breath. Be with body sensations much more carefully. So we learn to develop mindfulness of a series of objects. We learn to be able to be mindful of the breath and mindful of the body sensations, of the different senses. We can be mindful with our taste, our touch, and so forth. And we bring that mindfulness into our daily lives. Can I, to know that every moment of mindfulness matters. You're eating a meal, you can be mindful of the food, and it will, it will strengthen the same abilities we're strengthening in meditation. You can be with a friend and really stay in your body and listen to your friend, strengthening the same abilities we strengthen on the cushion or in the chair. So we learn to be mindful of the object. And then the other aspect of mindfulness that we don't always pay attention to is we learn to ask, what's my relationship to the object that I'm paying attention to? How do I relate to my breath? How do I relate to my irritation which has come up? How do I relate to my, uh, my knee hurting? So very important to see that as well. Mindfulness is not just about sticking with the object, it's also about what's my relationship to the object. Do I want it to go away? Do I want to grab hold of it? Those would be the two likely tendencies. So we, another way we can deepen our practice is to really keep asking the question, what's my relationship to the object right now? Especially with difficult states. We can ask that question. It's an important one to ask. How do I relate to what's happening right now? We can ask that in daily life. What's my relationship? Am I trying to get rid of it? For most of us in this culture, to deepen practice means to shift away from our mental preoccupations. We live in this very mental culture, so we need somehow to shift away so our stories, our preoccupations, don't simply rule our meditation sessions. So we have to sometimes really see clearly, oh, that's happening, give it a label. One way to deepen our practice is to really have some will at the beginning of a sitting, I will not simply indulge with my top ten mental patterns. And again, it has to be not so much you know, coming from, you know, a brutal authoritarian self. <laughs> it has to be relaxed in a way. It's like this, uh, we sometimes, I like to speak about tough loving kindness. <laughs> that attitude, you know, which is really that attitude. It's like, like, there's the wise part of us is like addressing the child part of us who's just you know, going off and thinking about this and thinking about that says, no, <laughs> not now. You know? and, and we have to be good, become better at that, basically, because we, we, we let the thoughts run wild often. And we need somehow to, to shift. So 
another poem from Rumi. No talk at Spirit Rock would be complete without at least one Rumi poem. <laughs> at night, I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine. Breathe into me. Close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door, only the window. I'll read that again. At night I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine. Breathe into me. So it's this metaphor, you know, of, we could say, of what's ever happening in our experience, the metaphor of the lover, right? That we open, and in a sense, we come to love our experience. I think this is what we get from Rumi or the, you know, the Song of Songs in the Hebrew Bible. We get this metaphor of spiritual practice as like this erotic encounter. It's a beautiful image. At night I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine, breathe into me, close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door, only the window. Hmm. So that's what we do, really. We, we learn how to let our, let our mind settle down so we can actually be more directly with experience. And as we do this more and more, we might say we, we develop what I like to call awakened qualities. So part of a way that we deepen our practice is the awakened qualities get stronger. Awakened qualities like mindfulness, like the ability to open the love window, loving kindness or compassion, get stronger. And we can actually deliberately develop in those qualities. We can, we can develop in mindfulness in the ways we've been talking about. We can develop in loving kindness. We can do that practice and just have that be really getting strengthened. I have found that something like a strong heart practice is necessary for being with the hard stuff. I think mindfulness is not enough, actually, for most people. Mindfulness practice is really important to have a heart practice. It really is necessary, in part, to have a non-judgmental attitude or relation to whatever is occurring. It's very easy for our practice to get very judgmental. And one of my observations from teaching for the month, because in the month people do open the love window and they go deeper. And part of what comes then is people move from that more superficial level of the talking and the chatter, although sometimes it comes back and it's a cycle. And as we practice more deeply, we go to deeper layers. And a lot of times we find um, painful territory. It's just the way it is. And some of that painful territory is self-judgment. It's strong in a lot of us. It's something that, that surfaces often as we go more deeply. We really are in touch with that. And so these awakened qualities of the heart are crucial for working with that. And one of the beautiful experiences of a month is that people really engage in a, a courageous and energetic and relaxed way with some of these deeper issues. 
of self-judgment or self-hatred, other issues, of course, as well. But those are, those are quite strong for a lot of us. You know, they're, quite, they're quite strong. And so we develop this ability. It's really, you know, one metaphor that I found helpful that we use sometimes in teaching the retreat is we develop the wise adult in ourselves who can deal with the hurt child. And we all carry this hurt child, you know, and it surfaces and, and it also, we also carry in a way the, the immature adult who's reacted to the hurt child. <laughs> If these, if these metaphors make sense to you. So I often found myself kind of having a sense of where's the wise adult? Where's the hurt child? Where's the semi-mature adult? <laughs> right? Kind of these three figures. And it's sometimes helpful to see where that is in oneself because we want to strengthen the wise adult, but we want to make room for everyone because everyone needs to uh, move and be healed and, and so forth. So part of what we do when we develop these qualities is that we have these peaceful meditations and wonderful being in touch with loving-kindness. And I would like to say that that's the predominant experience of people who go off for a retreat for a month. But I would not be telling the truth. (laughs) And in in actuality, one of the ways that we can deepen our practice is we get more skillful with the hard stuff, where we get more skillful with the ways that it's hard to be present. And we have to become experts at that. We have to somehow become experts at uh, being with that which gets in the way. And so when you're sitting here and you notice yourself thinking about lunch, which probably doesn't occur much, but maybe occasionally, or maybe something that will happen later in the day that you really want. And you can just be with that and name it and come back. So we, we work with what gets in the way of being present, sometimes our strong desires, sometimes our sense of, um, I don't want this happening right now. I'm having these hard feelings or I'm having these thoughts that I don't like or I really came here to be med- uh, you know, a good meditator this morning, and I'm just sleepy. What a drag. <laughs> right? I want to meditate, or I want to meditate at home, and I just find myself sleepy. And it's valuable to have a relation to that where we're not taking it as the enemy. In a way, what we're encouraged to do with all the difficult experiences, you know, I mean, sleepiness, I don't maybe need to call difficult, just could be something that gets in the way of awareness. And what we have to do somehow is just to say, yes, this is happening. Let me be present with it. Let me be as skillful as I can. Let me watch my idea, this shouldn't be here. And so when we deepen our practice, we get better at that. We would like to have these wonderful experiences, but a big part of our experience is other things happening. And so in your daily sitting, we have to have this patience, you know. So it's very helpful at home in your daily practice. I would say set a time that you're going to sit. If you would get up at the first moment that you think things aren't going great, you will get up soon. It's actually, I imagine that that's an issue for a lot of people, right? So it's helpful to really have a set time and just stay with it. 
Yeah. And do your best to be with what's um, hard in, in the experience, but really stay with it. And as we do that, we do go more deeply. We can touch our depth. Sometimes when we practice, memories come back, or we touch certain depths. In the one-month retreat, people opened up to a lot of deeper levels. They could be memories. They could be levels of awareness that they weren't aware of. They go into, go into um, states of peace that, again, many of us, when we meditate, we touch levels of peace that we haven't known before, which is amazing, inspiring, right? We can do that in the daily sittings or in retreats or in the woods. You know? So we touch those depths and we see our own prisons more clearly. We see our own delusions more clearly. We see how we're caught in our stories, in our narratives. It's one of the great virtues of our sitting. Our narratives, our stories that we repeat over and over again come right before us, right? We get to notice them. It's very helpful. Write them down. Identify your top ten list of narratives. <clears throat> Write them down so you can notice them more, more quickly. We see the persistent thoughts and stories. In a way, as we sit, we, we uh, in, the, in the words of William Blake, the poet, we cleanse the doors of perception. We see more clearly. One of the things that happens in retreats is everything starts to sparkle at times. We see, and maybe in meditation, you come out of meditation, the eyes are a little fresh because we're actually staying with the object. This is, this is uh, William Blake's phrase from his, um, from his writing. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is, infinite. For human beings have closed themselves up till they see all things through narrow chinks of their cavern. How do you know but that every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight closed by your senses five? That's something we open up to as we practice. The world becomes more mysterious. Our minds get more quiet. We, we open up in that way. And we start to get more familiar with how the process of transformation occurs. And one of my own observations from the month is that there's both the possibility of committed attention in our lives and committed practice, but also everyone has his or her own pace. You can't rush it. You can't rush it because of your wishes. You can practice more. You can set priorities. But really interesting to see in a month, people have their own paces. They have their own lives. We have our own stuff that has to open up and unfold. The transformative process can't be rushed. I think a lot of a, of a gospel song that my brother's uh, band used to play uh, from you know, sort of the southern gospel tradition. And the line in it is, it's, it's referring to God saying, he may not come when you want, but he's right on time. <laughs> I think transformation is something like that, you know, that we can really be present as fully as we can, but we can't necessarily have this happen that we want or that happen that we want. So it's paradoxical, right? We come into this paradoxical territory. And there are these beautiful openings that can occur. Here's, here's another poem from 
Mary Oliver. It's a poem called, Who Said This? Something whispered something that was not even a word. It was more like a silence that was understandable. I was standing at the edge of a pond. Not, nothing living, what we call living, was in sight. And yet the voice entered me, my body life, with so much happiness. And there was nothing there but the water, the sky, the grass. The voice entered me. It was a, whether it's the voice of beauty or peace or joy, we open ourselves more to these moments. You know, another line that I like a lot, it's about the mystery of awakening or the mystery of opening. And you can't force it, you can't predict it. But one line that I like a lot is that practice or that awakening and opening are accidents. But meditating and practicing makes us more accident prone. <laughs> so I like that a lot. There's, there's something mysterious about it. So we do enter into this paradoxical place where we, it's, it's valuable to set priorities and put out effort to pay attention, but you can't rush it. You know? Milarepa, the great Tibetan teacher, said, hasten slowly. <laughs> Hasten slowly. So we need that kind of balanced effort. And again, it's continually, this continual being here, being present, just coming back. That's the single focus for deepening practice in our meditation in our daily lives. Just come back to being here, what's going on. Simple, right? Don't need to come to Spirit Rock to get that information, but somehow we need that. So just to be here, to be present. And then these openings can occur and learning can occur. And we can have these breakthroughs that Mary Oliver speaks about. So let's just sit for a minute or so. some time for uh, questions or reflections of any kind. Please. I wasn't clear about your question about asking what is your relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, were you saying that it's either aggressive or grasping? Right, yeah. It, or those would be strong tendencies. So it doesn't have that's to be... really what you're asking. Yeah, it's like to say, when I'm meditating, what's my relationship to the breath? Or if I have irritation in my mind, what's my relationship to it? It might be aversive. Or I'm having some 
some things and you can ask in daily life as well. This is happening. What's my relationships? Because that sometimes goes under the radar. And so it can be really helpful. You know, we can know what's happening. It's possible to know what's happening you know, and be mindful in that way, but not to know how we're relating. So it actually is a very helpful way. So if we think of our mindfulness as having those, those two aspects, in, in a sense we have the subject needs to connect with the object, but we also need to look at the relationship, as it were, of the subject and the object. Interesting, yeah. It can, that can be a practice in itself. Yeah, please. I had a, a kind of an interesting experience. Last week there was this Qigong master. Yeah. Um, and so we all got up to do an exercise, and, and it was an exercise. I think it was something about a circle's outside, and you're supposed to feel it inside you. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to do it, and he, he, I found his voice. It was droning. It mm-hmm. was, I just I could not take it. It was the voice and the having that inside me. I was just get I could I couldn't stand still, mm-hmm. and I wanted to leave. And I thought. No, stay. Mm-hmm. You know, just stay with this. But I just couldn't do it. Yeah. So then I left, and I saw Jack Cornfield in the back, and I thought, Oh my God, Jack Cornfield came all the way here to do this, and I I should do it too. I mean, it must be really good if Jack came. <laughs> but, and I thought maybe I should go back. But then you know I just left, and I thought, Well, that was really interesting. I mean, I didn't know quite what to make of it, but I did know <clears> that. I really felt that I couldn't stay. Yeah. So, I, you know, I... So I, you, you knew what your relationship to the object was. <laughs> <laughs> was um, aversive, uncomfortable. Yeah, and of course there are times when that's a wise decision not to stay with the object. But it's very helpful to know what the relationship is, which sounds like you were doing. And then I, I noticed that I was judgmental towards myself in yeah. some sense, but then I also noticed, well, I'm going to let myself off yeah. and not, not go back and yeah. just see. It's sort of stored away for, for future reference. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, so that sounds skillful. You were, you know, I'd like, of course there are situations we can have an aversive relation to the object, but it's appropriate to sort of shift that relationship, you know. If I have a... If I have pain and I'm sitting and I have an injury and I'm aversive towards it, it's not wise to continue in a way that hurts ourselves, right? So we would, but it's really wise to know what the relationship is. So sometimes we, doesn't mean we, doesn't mean we stay with everything and no aversion, but we probably do it a lot more than we usually do. Yeah. Thanks. There's one, there's one in the back. Oh, please, yeah. Reminds me of childbirth, yeah. which has to do with um, you're not in charge of it. Yeah. You can interfere with it massively. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the practice of breathing with it, as opposed to breathing to ignore it, yeah. it was something I um, tried to cultivate yeah. many years ago. And, but it, this was a, it was not only a real experience, it was metaphoric. Very, very much, yeah. One of our teachers on this one-month retreat has been a midwife. <laughs> so we had some midwife stories, and I think it's a powerful metaphor. You know, and, um, uh, 
Yeah, in so many ways, you know, we're, you know, both the process and, the, you know, in a way when we, when we enter into this mode of practice, we are giving birth to ourselves. And so it's not uncommon to have dreams of involving birth in some way, you know, when we're engaged in this practice, because it's a very natural metaphor, you know, in both that relaxing and not in control and giving birth to something new, the creativity, the, the power. Yeah, yeah I've, I've obviously never given birth physically, but I have in my dreams. Like an honorary woman for an evening. <laughs> something like that. And more than once, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. Please. I often struggle with um, the challenge of, or the paradox of, be with what is, yeah. and don't let my mind run wild. Yeah. Um, can you s say more deep tips on that? I mean, I often realize that I'm like g lost in thought, yeah. and I come back. Yeah. But. But uh, being with what is, is I'm probably going to get lost in thoughts again soon. Yeah. So, <laughs> where's that um, loving discipline? Yeah, did everyone hear the question? <laughs> it's about uh, um, what does loving discipline mean when my thoughts are running wild? And yeah, so it's, it's um, there maybe a few things there. One, one is that there's a way when we sit or when we practice that we let go of the controls to some extent. So, but we, so it's a question of how do we let go of the larger controls but still keep some discipline, something, something like that. So we let go and that sometimes our minds we just go off places, right? And, and there's a positive aspect to that, that we're not, we're not you know, trying to suppress everything, right? And yet if we're only lost in thought, we, you know, we can't be lost in thought and really attentive to what's here. Uh, so in that sense, it's not a paradox. We really just, but it's maybe, maybe the, the answer is partly in the relationship you have to your thoughts. We have to have sort of a, a friendly relationship to all those lost in thought times. They're not the enemy. It's just what's happening. And so the that's where looking at the relationship to my thoughts is helpful. Do I have an antagonistic relation to my thoughts? Do I want to get rid of them? Or, because I think the mature attitude is just to, is to both let them arise, but then as soon as we notice them, just come back, and to have more and quicker noticing. So it's, um, and some of that can involve some discipline. We might say to ourselves at the beginning of a sitting, when I notice, this thought or that thought, I will come back. And we can use some aspects of technique that are helpful, such as to name particular thought patterns, give it an actual name, which can help us to notice it more quickly. So I can name, you know, conversation with John or, or um, finance reflection, <laughs> financial reflection or work reflection or partner reflection or whatever your label is. And you can uh, notice that more quickly by the labeling. So there's, there are a number of aspects of the discipline that 
are more matters of technique and intention. And you know, it's also there's also a piece that's quite important that we don't talk about so much. I think that is that is sometimes working with our bodies and energetically can have a big impact on the amount of thoughts. So I think it can be very helpful, for example, before you sit, to take a walk, to take a 10-minute walk, to do some yoga, you know, something um, of an energetic nature like qigong, like, like you did last week. We had qigong twice a day at the retreat. The qigong brings the energy down. A lot of our culture, I heard one, one of my Tibetan teachers says, Western culture, energy way up. <laughs> You know, maybe Ming Tong Gu, the teacher last week, says something similar. Energy way up, he says. He says, I also, I come to the United States, you know, and my energy go way up. <laughs> you know, and he says, I have to be careful. You know, I'm thinking all the time. <laughs> come to Western culture thinking about, you know, my new iPod or something. And, and so... Uh, those energetic practices can actually have a huge impact on the level of thinking. So it's not so the meditative tools are great, but also sometimes just energetically, you know, sometimes like he says, one's energy should sort of live in one's belly. For most of us, it's way up there, all over the place. So energetic practices can have a huge impact on what actually happens in your meditation, or something like walking, yoga, and so forth. So that's another. Something I found found with some people who have, you know, and some of us have very active minds. And, and again, not to make that the enemy, because it can have great gifts as well. Right? Uh, but it's like in meditation, it it's, uh, needs to be um, trained. And so I found some people with very active minds, they meditate a whole lot, but actually it's only when they do the body practices that there's some major shifts. So something good to good to remember. Yeah, maybe last, maybe um, last two if you can be brief. If but if not, we'll. So one one way, we'll just do it. Okay. Yeah. I was in a classroom yesterday with like twenty-four eight-year-old boys. Yeah. And, um, and they they were incredibly attentive, but at times they'd start to fidget and get restless. Yeah. And the teacher would just um, it's obviously a practice in the classroom, but she would just say three, two, one. And they would settle out. <laughs> and I've been mm-hmm. thinking about that. This there you go. But, but mm-hmm. I also just thought the thing with the energy, typically, it's like I'm going to count to three or I'm going to count to ten, and there's sort of an implied threat at the end. Yeah. And it goes up yeah. instead of down. It yeah. becomes more charged. Yeah. It's really lovely to see the settling. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever helps you to settle like that, it could be, you know, recite a poem or. Um, Bring your attention down low. I mean, it, it, this takes training, you know. If you have a body practice, do that for a little while. Yeah. So last, last I was question. I going to say that a couple things that's been helpful for me is one is bringing a lightness yeah. to my meditation. And yeah. when I hear the word discipline, there's, yeah. there's a weight to that. Yeah. And when I think of lightness, and I, I, I find my mind amusing. Yeah. How, it's humorous how active it can be. Yeah. And when I just approach it in that way, I find that it, it, it's not so, so firm and get back to the task. Yeah. And the other part of that is when I do identify, such as you're saying about what is going on, um, 
planning yeah. that I've learned is a is a fairly strong component of my yeah. mind. Yeah. And the other the other one which um, I've kind of taken examples of my mind and, and, and what's going on and taking it to the next level and say, what is that really? And often it's ego. Yeah. And and so I, I learn a lot about my myself through identifying such you know, like you're suggesting these these uh, not only what is being said, but what is that representing? Great. Yeah. And your, your name again? Fred. Fred. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, a lot of, lot of good tips. And yeah, we need, you know, for most of us, words like discipline and rigor don't resonate so well. So we have to find a different language. You know, it's almost like, you know, I'm aware that there's a whole different approach in sports coaching that's coming from a kind of non-authoritarian stance, but still a lot of it is really emphasizing what's really going well and really kind of building on the positive to sort of bring out the, the, uh, what we could call discipline. So if discipline works for you as a word, fine, but maybe we need to just find our own way that doesn't kind of lock hold with our self-judgment and with our own you know, harshness. We want something that is friendly, but firm, right? So maybe, maybe, maybe the notion of the wise parent is a good one. That that doesn't sound so bad, right? What would my wise parent say right now? That might be skillful. So we have to find our own skillful ways to bring about that that quality of firmness. It's interesting, isn't it? Find maybe we'll can share next week. What helps you? You know, what what helps you to have that quality of what we otherwise could call discipline. You know? <coughs> I like I like invoking the wise parent or the wise grandparent. That that sounds pretty neat. Or your wise friend. Yeah. Good. So let's just um, we're at we're at time now. So let's just sit for a minute to close. Remembering that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but for others, that our lives have tremendous impact on others, of all beings, of all kinds. That our lives are these wonderful ripples that go both inside and outside. Every moment of our experience ripples inside, ripples outside. And so we do this ancient practice of offering what's been helpful from the morning out beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock, out into the world for the benefit, the healing, the freedom of all beings. So, thank you so much for allowing me to come back to the community with my report from this one month and to use it as a way to uh, support my practice and our practice. Thank you.